Welcome to Connect the Dots podcast, presented by Nine Dots and hosted by Jeffrey Klein. We share stories and explore their power to impact others. Our aim is to share some edutainment, to give some useful nuggets that can be applied to your business while also entertaining you. Thank you for listening. Here is your host, Jeffrey. My guest today is Jim Rutenberg, media columnist for the New York Times, for which he has written over 2,300 articles. Mr. Rutenberg started his career at a New York Daily News and has held positions as chief political correspondent for New York Magazine, investigative reporter, White House correspondent, city hall bureau chief, and gossip writer for the Daily News and New York Post. Mr. Rutenberg says he is energized by the challenge of covering so much important news and working to unearth and promote the truth. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to ask you nine questions and then ask you to tell us a story. And I like to start at the beginning. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? I'm from Philadelphia, PA. Woo! It's a great city. And uh, my dad was a corporate lawyer, but he worked for a lot of interesting clients, including the Philadelphia Flyers. Awesome. And uh, my mother uh, was a, uh, she worked most of her working life at a, a store there in Wynwood, a China place, China shop, um, and was a graduate of UP, both of them. And, uh, a lot of Philly love. She went to the same high school that I went to and you went to and your father went to and that's Friends Central School. A fantastic educational institution. So I want to ask you, who was a great storyteller when you were growing up and sort of what made them good? You know, I guess some, we had we were lucky at my high school. We had a lot of them. I'm going to tell you <laughs> that uh, this is a cautionary tale uh, because this person, just because he was a good storyteller, didn't mean that his stories were true. And there's the lesson. And uh, so the best storyteller that I had was our... 10th grade history teacher who actually was, uh, his name was Louis DuPont-Smith. He died within the last couple of years. He was a an heir to the DuPont family. And what the school didn't realize until much later into the school year was that he had fallen in with a political figure from the fringe named Lyndon LaRouche. And Lyndon LaRouche told a fantastic tale about the nation's founding that was based on what was portrayed as a giant conspiracy between the Queen of England, drug traders, and something, uh, an amorphous group called the oligarchy. Uh, it was a fantastical story. It personally captured my imagination, and until I sort of came to, the school figured out who he was, and he found out, well, gee, we didn't learn real history. <laughs> and the lesson in that story was that... Um, a story can be very powerful, uh, and sometimes the facts do get in the way, and the better-seeming stories are, end up being false, and that's a cautionary tale. So uh, as... On the, sorry, know, go on. Well, say on the flip side, we had a teacher, Gary Nikolai, who taught us world history, which obviously was a challenge sometimes because of some of our gaps in U.S. history, which I've spent my whole life catching up and filling. Um, and he told the story through of all things, the New York Times, and but always linked back what was happening in the world at that point in the 80s to what had come before 
over the preceding centuries, and that was uh, a, a sort of the flip side, the answer to Louis Dupont Smith. So, as a reporter, I believe you know telling the truth is fairly important to you. Yeah, it's everything, right? It's what we what so, we live for, what we wake up in the morning for every morning. Yeah. And in terms of you know telling a compelling story, you're talking about someone who did it without telling the truth. So you know, do you think an important element? What do you think is the most important element in telling a good story? Well, aside from being true, uh, and I I live to tell stories that are true that kind of help clean up the false stories and, and debunk them. But good stories all need the same thing. They need very interesting characters. And by the way, all people are potentially interesting. You just have to find the things that make them interesting, right? Um, biography for biography's sake doesn't really do it. Uh, you need high stakes. You know, we are both fortunate and unfortunate to live in a time right now where uh, the stakes are very high every day. Uh, so you need that kind of reader investment. You need the unexpected, the surprises. That's what we call news. News is uh, what we was not known yesterday, largely, right? And um, and it's got to connect. Everything in the story has to connect. It can't be disjointed. It has to carry the person, the reader, whoever along. Well, they in terms of yeah, in terms of connecting, that's something I believe wholeheartedly in, as I try and do it uh, all the time. Do you think that you know you you write for a business? I mean, New York Times is, is a business. Do you think it's important for businesses to be able to tell compelling stories? Yeah, I mean, I you know I won't say the company, but I was out with a source today who's talking very much about a company that um, has lost control of its story. Right, and that's going to cause that's causing problems for it um, on uh, in Washington, and that's causing problems for it in its terms of its stock. And you know, it, we weren't talking about Facebook, but let's put Facebook in that in the category. So, Facebook showed what was a great story: connecting the world, mm-hmm. uh, bringing together. You know. Bringing, bringing to life your most intimate moments and letting you share those with friends and finding old friends and just amazing and bringing bringing news to places parts of India that never had internet before they had a great story the problem was it was an incomplete story and it was they didn't really live up to their story right in terms of what their motives necessarily are what their interests for their business and the public necessarily are. And now the story has turned on them. They've lost control of it, but they lost control of it because they didn't live up to their story. So story for the sake of story, from a journalistic perspective, I work for the business desk at this newspaper. Uh, story for the sake of story can be very powerful, but when it's disconnected from reality, there are people like me out there who are looking for that disconnect and looking to point it out when the stakes are high. Look at Theranos. Theranos is a, is a, the number one uh, story in, in this regard. Where uh, do you know what Theranos is? I don't. So Theranos was a biotech firm founded by a whip smart, very young woman who claimed to have invented a blood testing device that was tiny that everyone could use at their homes. And no, I, sort of, now that you're saying it, I, it was all. Predicated on on falsehood, correct? Well, yeah. So this this device didn't really work. It wasn't made up out of whole cloth, but she sold 
Rupert Murdoch, for instance, yeah. invested $100 million in her company. Uh, every venture capitalist in Silicon Valley wanted to be part of this. General Mattis was on her board. Uh, you know, um, you could go George Schultz, the former Reagan administration official, now at Stanford, the Wilson School. Everyone invested in this woman because they were so taken by her story. The story was false. She's now in huge legal trouble. They all have eggs on their face, and they're all much, uh, I won't say poorer because none of them is poor, but they've lost a lot of money. They lost a lot of money. So story can build you up, and uh, the unraveling of story can take you down. Do you think that being a good, good at telling stories is a skill that can be developed, or you either have it or you don't? I definitely think it's a skill that can be developed. But it depends on things you either have or you don't. If you're incurious and not excited by the story you're trying to tell, the story's not going to be very good. Uh, so what I mean by incurious is you want to really bring to life the things that people are going to find fascinating that other people are going to be curious about because you understand curiosity and you understand how to feed curiosity. If you're not curious, you don't care you're not going to really be a great storyteller. Uh, if you're not excited, you don't care, you're not going to tell a great story. But everyone, I just don't believe that people don't have it. We, this, Before there was a written word, human history was told verbally. We've told mm-hmm. stories since we've been, since there's been civilized human uh, societies. So stories, everyone can do it, but it does require certain elements of uh it's not even personality. It's just interest and curiosity and and passion. And can you name a brand that you think tells effective stories, and, and what do you think makes them effective? Um, I don't cover advertising per se, though, from the media comes pay attention to it. Uh, I think Nike tells a really good story, right? I think Starbucks tells a really good story. They're very basic um, but let's take Nike, you know, that just do it campaign was iconic for a reason. Apple tells an amazing story. I mean, the best ad in, in arguably in history, in my view, that that history was the famous Apple, um, 1984 ad that has the, the mm-hmm. runner running up to a screen and throwing a, throwing a rock or whatever it was. It smashes the screen, uh, where there are a bunch of drone like people yep. in the audience. And that's, that tells you everything that Apple wanted you to think about its product. And Apple has, for its flaws, because every company is flawed, um, it has done a good job of at least making a show of staying true to that story. It has faltered um, the way it manufactures its products, especially when it was the Foxconn factories in, in Asia. Those were, again, story. But I think generally they, they've told a really good story and they've stayed fairly true to it. But, you know, again, there are teams of reporters everywhere poking at that story mm-hmm. to see where its flaws are. But in terms of Nike and Apple, why do you think they were so effective in their story? The simplicity? You know, so they're basic stories? I think they had a good sense of what they were and what they wanted to stand for. So, you know, Steve Jobs, I mean, that was one of the most important skills he had. He knew what he wanted his company to stand for and what he wanted it to do. He had the benefit of having an amazing product, mm-hmm. right? Right. So a product that's changed the world, but take even the world changing aspect away, it's just it's beautifully designed, it's well thought out, it's something we hadn't seen before. It's just uh 
it just had a little bit of everything you need. So he, he had an advantage there. That's why maybe Nike's all the more impressive because it's a sneaker at the end of the day. A sneaker people really like, I guess, you know, and in my day there were fights over those <laughs> sneakers sometimes. But uh, that's doing something with a lot less. I mean, maybe Steve Jobs had a slightly easier job, but he had an easier job because he's visionary, so he had the whole package. So it's about, do you think it's about having that vision that makes the story compelling? I think it's knowing what you are. If you're not clear on what you are, then you're not, you can't tell a good story. You'll tell a very muddled story. And so does that relate back to sort of being authentic? You know, we're talking about the truth and the yeah, need to be being, who you being are. Authentic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Being authentic, but also being able to distill what you stand for into, as you put it, a very simple concept. So now I'd love it if you could share with us a story where you found yourself, uh, where some in some way that you connected the dots. I mean, it's kind of what we do in investigative journalism, right? So, you know, the story, I could tell you my own story, but it's the story that I'd rather tell is one that's in the news right now. And that is the Michael Cohen, the, the Trump Michael Cohen story about uh, the scandal involving Karen McDougal, the Playboy model, Stormy Daniels, and uh, illicit payments to keep them both quiet at the end of the campaign in 2016. And if you're interested, I can tell you the story about how that kind of all came out, because that now uh, will it's lead in the to it's in the headlines yeah. and it may lead to important things, you know. If the Democrats in the House decide to pursue impeachment, they could bring this tawdry tale into that uh, from a legal standpoint. And the way we wound up there was was just an interesting series of dots. And, and you know, we were there with the, the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't just the Times, but we were definitely in the very much in the mix of that story with the team I was working with. And it just shows you how things how it works sometimes in my business. And we were. Um, covering the sexual harassment case of Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And for those who weren't, kind of don't remember that, but it was a year ago. The start uh, of the Times, sort of Me Too campaign. The start of the Me Too movement. The Times broke a series of stories about this powerful Hollywood mogul horribly abusing women. These are all allegations, criminal charges yet, but uh, we detailed these, these allegations and, and the money that Weinstein had spent to cover up quiet these allegations. And one of the things that uh, Harvey Weinstein had at his disposal was his alliance with the National Enquirer, the tabloid supermarket scandal sheet that is really supposed to be about unearthing the truths about the powerful. But when they were had, they actually had a business relationship with Harvey Weinstein and they, they were helping him dig into the women who were going to make accusations to see their vulnerabilities so they could either shut them up or pick apart their stories or whatever Harvey would do with that information. And as we were working on that story, and I was working helping on that story, people started saying, you know, what you really have to look at is how the National Enquirer had bought a story from a woman who was alleging an affair with Trump during the campaign, Karen McDougal, and sat on it, something that's known as catch and kill. And so people say, you know, it's interesting what they did for Harvey, but you really have to look at that. And that led us to start digging into these stories. And the journal 
in competition with us. They had broken the first story in November 2016, right before the election. No one kind of noticed it. They start working on it again around the same time, and we start figuring out, hmm, okay, well, we know that uh, at the same time that Karen McDougal was bought off by the Inquirer, there was another woman who showed up named Stormy Daniels who claimed an affair. She's a, a porn actress. She suddenly disappeared. Something took place there. We figure out, uh, as the journal did too, the journal actually got out slightly ahead of us on that, that um, Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, had paid her. Then we kept digging. This took weeks, if not months. Two months later, we can establish that Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, was involved with the Inquirer, was to kind of talk to people at the Inquirer, talking to the lawyer for the Playboy model as the National Enquirer and the Playboy model were striking this deal. And you know, technically, there would be no reason why the lawyer to the president would be involved in that deal if that deal was just between the Enquirer and this Playboy model. And then we start realizing, you know, there are campaign finance implications to this because if that money was spent to protect the president's election prospects, that would be a violation of campaign finance law, just as it was for John Edwards, the senator from North Carolina years before. So we just started putting these dots together. And what we now know is that at the same time we were putting those dots together, federal prosecutors in New York were putting those dots together. They've now got it where it implicates the president himself. Did he know about these payments? Did he direct these payments? <clears throat> Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty to violating the law. No, he's violating the law. He said the president directed him. He's one voice on that right now. We haven't seen corroborating evidence. It looks like prosecutors at least think they have some. And that is just how this works. It's connecting dots, but it's connecting dots by reporting. You know, we got documentation that showed that Michael Cohen was in the mix when the Inquirer is striking this deal with this porn actress, Stormy Daniels. So it's all connecting dots, but through real evidence. You see people on cable TV who connect dots, and then without the reporting. And so they will say, well, this happened and that happened. Therefore, I have to assume that this other thing happened. And in my business, we do not assume, we do not connect dots without knowing they're truly connected, which takes months of work. It takes flying around the country. It takes endless amounts of phone calls. It means getting people to talk to you who's, who only have a risk in t talking to you, but, but care enough about the truth that they want to help. It's connecting dots, um, but the right way and not the easy way. You see them Twitter a lot. People connect dots and what we call them internet sleuths between things they can find through Google, ever lifting a phone, lifting a phone or getting on a plane or knocking on a door. And it's just, that's not good enough. Maybe sometimes they're right when they connect those dots, but we don't like to just assume we have to know. And so connecting dots is, is what we do, but doing it the right way. And again, it seems to all revolve around truth. Now, do you think that the truth is an absolute? Or do you think that there are different shades of being true? Are you a black and white guy or either someone no, I mean, did something or something not. they didn't? No, of course not. Nothing's, nothing's, you know, we try to do, we always stay up at night to we do enough to get this right. So, and we're not perfect and we make mistakes. But there is absolute truth at times. When someone says it's raining out when the sun is shining, that's absolutely just not true. And, you know, Facebook will say, have been taking this stand for a while. We need to be there's a truth. There is no truth. There is truth. There is absolute truth. It's sunny out. Um, you know, the 
it is there is it is absolute truth, for instance, that uh, a gunman shot kids in Sandy Hook and killed them. It, that is just, that is truth. Um, we we know that, and so that so that's a place where there's truth. But other times there are shades of gray. We don't know everything there is to know about the story I told you about in terms of uh, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. We know prosecutors had enough to get a guilty plea out of Michael Cohen. So now that's, we know that his role is true, assuming, which I will, that he doesn't want to go to jail because of that, you know, right. um, which he now may. So it's, people don't normally say they did things they didn't do and get jail time. Uh, if we were to find out that were the case, we would report that too, and that would be an amazing story. But we don't still know the president's role. He's implicated, but we gotta, you know, people have to keep reporting that. And so, you know, there there are all kinds of shades of, of gray. Um, there there can be disagreements about the same set of facts. That's what I think is the proper debate we should have in the country. You know, if you are conservative or you're liberal, uh, if you're arguing over the same set of facts and have different differences opinion uh, about how to handle those facts, that's that's what it should be. Not denying the truth of the thing, you know, so you can't even have a debate anymore. And that's that's kind of what's been going on. So as a reporter and a, and a journalist, I'm curious about your take kind of on that in terms of objectivity. Is it possible to be completely objective? And, you know, we all have views or political feelings one way or the other. Do you take the responsibility of being objective in, in what you do, or is it okay for a publication, a reporter, to have, to, to color their story with personal feelings, opinions, etc.? Well, what you should never do is color your story with personal feelings, and that's obviously happened more than it should in the Trump era on, on you know, in, in all directions, but I think, you know, just even at straight newspapers, you see too much of it on Twitter that bothers me a lot. But the important thing is your facts are your facts, and you don't. And if it wants you, and everyone has their biases, so bringing in our job, I believe, is to deny those biases as much as you can to, to use discipline because our goal is the story, nothing else. So, and whatever that story leads to, the consequences of that story, if it's like people are dying because something horrible is happening in, in your town, I don't have a problem with you caring about getting that story right and wanting people. So something that happens with not dying anymore. That's the height of our business. And I think it's objectively to stop, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing or a huge health hazard. So I have no problem with that. When it comes to more the political, I mean, and that's what drives good reporting sometimes. These people are dying. Why is that? Oh, X company is doing something that's causing that and, and not admitting it. Well, then I don't have a problem with reporters being passionate about wanting to unearth that story as long as they stick to facts and the agenda is getting to the bottom of what's making people die. When it comes to politics, uh, you have to strip your opinion away. You have to go where the facts are, and the facts, wherever they lead, I think you objectivity means you take it wherever it is, and that could mean going against what, where your own biases may lie. And it's again, as a journalist, you get the story. You take out a person you may have been inclined to vote for. I personally don't vote, by the way, but um, the people who do, maybe you end up taking out the person you were going to vote for. But as a journalist, there's no higher thing than putting out someone did something bad that people need to know about. And if that means people vote against them, 
that's that. And if it means they don't, that's that too, right? Like, it's not the job of the reporter to take the person out. It's the job of the reporter to present this to the voters, and the voters can make their decision. It's our opinion side that can now opine, that was a bad decision, I wish that had happened. It's not the straight news journalist role. Um, how do you determine whether something is newsworthy or not? Look, sometimes in this environment, sometimes the things you care about, people don't find newsworthy, and you see that you don't get the clicks. But if you think that it just really needs to be out there in the public sphere, and it's for the same way that you know you want people to care, but you can't make them care, if you think the story is really important, then you got to do it. But you know what we've learned in the age of clicks and ratings, and you know things that we can now see what people are reading. You better do everything you can to make people interested in the thing you're writing about. Uh, but, but you know, um, we write about campaign finance at this newspaper. We write, you know, without sex scandals involved, and people don't tend to read them, but we're still going to do them. We write about education at this newspaper. People don't always click on that, but we're still going to write about it. We have people in war zones uh, in, that are that are sort of have gone forgotten in this country. Those stories, we spend a lot of money on them. We're fortunate we can do that. They don't get clicks. We're still going to do them. So, but in the internet era, when we can again see what people are clicking on, we we do have to do. It's our responsibility to the business we work for and our own stories to do everything we can to draw people in within reason. But do you think there's a, a line that can be blurred in terms of news reporting and entertainment? I think that's something that's yeah, guess. that happens like crazy. It happens like crazy, and sometimes it happens in Trump coverage, right? Like. You know, he puts on a show of something, and he and I think he does this. There's a debate about how intentional this is. I think sometimes it is intentional, and it's let's say it's a fight with someone, and it's a name calling, and that's all very. Whether our readers admit it or not, they're getting drawn in because it's a show that's drawing their attention. And when that gets away from the substance of the related debate in Congress or what have you, then we're losing the thread. Like, that's not our job. That should be, that could be, let it entertainment tonight do that. You know, so, and vice versa, you know, if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer went into the Oval Office wanting to put on a show for their own rights, it's not our job to publicize their show. It's our job to keep our eye on the, on the issues. Keep your eye on the issues. Uh, do, do you worry about the audience, you know, the American public in terms of what they care about? not necessarily being issues, that they're more interested in the style than the substance? Yeah, I do. I worry about it, I guess. Um, but, you know, who am I? I'm just like a reporter here, and um, it's not my place to judge. Uh, but And it's been this way for a long time. But it is, again, and I'll, I keep coming back to this, interestingly, since this is all about story, you have to then, you have to engage the public on the thing you care about, so you, maybe it means being a little more entertaining and drawing them in. And there's nothing wrong with that, It's but the blurring of entertainment or news has been going on for decades, and I think it's it's been a bad, very bad and damaging trend. But What's, what's, the, so what's the, the remedy for it? I don't know that there is one other than presenting important matters in engaging ways. Right? I just don't. It, it, there are so many factors have gotten us here. Um, that, you know, there's a great, uh, there's a great old book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it's decades old, and it kind of foresaw this, everything going this way. And, you know, there's a lot to place to get us here, and so I don't know if there's a single remedy, but, you know, if this is where the public is, 
you've got to present your journalism. We have to present our journalism in a way that they want to engage with it. Um, but again, within our standards, which are pretty strict here, mm-hmm. you know, we're not to be do entertainment for entertainment's sake. It's just not what we should be doing. Jim, I want to thank you for sharing your stories, your perspective as a journalist. I think it's fantastic to hear kind of from the inside about how a story works and, and what's important. And, and I want to simply say thank you for helping us connect the dots. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. That was a enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it of value. I would super appreciate if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It would be amazing if you could leave a review, comment, and share. Share and show you care. Check out Nine Dots Podcast for more great episodes. Remember, story matters. Thanks again for helping me connect the dots.